Greetings to the 12 tribes scattered abroad and Baruch Hashem Yahweh. Thank you for joining us, everybody, this Shabbat. And I want to thank you, our special donors and supporters, all of you guys online and here locally that keep us on the airwaves. Now, remember, if you like this video, give us a thumbs up. And we've got some comments available today, so you can make some comments, keep them cool, keep them kosher, but tell us what kind of content you want in the future. Today we are in Zephaniah, or Zephaniah, depending on how you want to be Hebraic or not. Chapter 1, let's delve in today. Zephaniah, chapter 1, and we will look at the word of Yahuwah that came to Zephaniah or Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Armiah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, in the Hebrew there, Yoshiyahu, that's quite a mouthful for you, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So that's how chapter 1 of Zephaniah, Zephaniah, the book of Zephaniah opens for us today. Here's the context. I will utterly sweep all things from Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, says Yahuwah. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heavens and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked, and I will cut off man from the land of Israel, says Yahuwah. So perhaps today in this crazy nuclear age, we can really have a glimpse of maybe what the instruments of that sweeping are, more so than maybe generations before us. But like I said last week, this is the book of Zephaniah. Too often Christian commentators try and soften the judgments because, you know, it's Sunday church, not for us, but oftentimes for many. And this doesn't bode well for a Sunday sermon to inspire you through the next of the week. But this is really, really important that we don't render irrelevant the judgment of the word of Zephaniah because that would be a huge mistake to make that change to the word of the prophet because he's talking about our future, the day of Yahuwah. It's in very important. Look, I will also stretch out my hand upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So there's no soft blow here. This isn't like, oh, you know, it's only for the really wicked people. No, this is not just localized judgment. This is judgment going out to all because there comes a point when the Creator has to be true to who He is. Yes, He's long-suffering. Yes, He's merciful. But at some point, He has to reign supreme and judge wickedness. Otherwise, He cannot be true to who He is in His very essence. Now, when are you at that time? Is it like the house of Judah? Is it like us right now? Is it going to be in the next 18 months leading up to the next election? Well, it <laughs> seems like it possibly could be. But, you know, maybe that's just my slant. I am living in the Pacific Northwest, right? So it's a little bit more mad out here than it is um, maybe in the Midwest. So anyway, let's look at verse 4 where he says, I will also stretch out my hand upon Judah 
and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal, or the Lord, from this place, and the, and the name of the leading priests of idolatry with the priests. So the theme of the day of Yahweh is really what this text is about, specifically this first chapter. And like I said, we need to come to terms with that day because that day is in our future. That day will come to pass. You can't ignore the reality of that. The day of Yahweh is actually drawn from the Old Testament, and even Paul uses it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5 in particular. So in the Old Testament, the day of Yahweh is all about this divine warrior figure that is going to lead this heavenly host in a great battle against the Luciferic, satanic enemies, and he is going to win by using these cosmic forces of weapons like thunder and earthquakes and falling stones. There's going to be water. There's going to be terror. There's going to be panic. Los Angeles is going to fall into the ocean. I mean, all of these types of things is what's going to be the day of Yahweh. And so let's look at some of those passages from what Paul draws from in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and of course what Zephaniah is drawing from. They're not making this stuff up. It's coming from the words of the Old Testament, the Tanakh. 1 Samuel 7.10. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and as we read some of these, think of the context because like I'm going to read here in 1 Samuel 7.10, he's going to be offering up a burnt offering, right? And he's going to be talking about the day of the Lord or the day of Yahweh. But then in Revelation, you're going to see how the apocalypse takes all of this writing from the Old Testament and then attributes it to, yes, there is going to be a burnt offering. But the burnt offering is going to be all the sinners and Carcasses are going to be on the earth and the birds of the air are going to come down and there's going to be this great feast and it all plays out into the marriage supper of the Lamb because this is all apocalyptic in its very, very essence. I mean, I love reading this stuff. And as Samuel was offering the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But Yahuwah thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them, and they were smitten down before Israel. So we've got thunderings, earthquakes. I mean, we, we can see how this can really be brought in in our time and people be panicking absolute chaos and people panic because they're living as if today will be just the same tomorrow and nothing will change but Yahweh can change things immediately Exodus 14:20 and it came between the camp of Id Egypt and the camp of Israel and there was the cloud and the darkness yet gave it light by night and the one came not near the other all night. So we've got darkness. And, you know, we do live in a modern age, but the lights could go out so easily. Look what happened in Venezuela. Our power grid is like 
50 years old nationally. I mean, and all of these cyber attacks that can easily happen. And literally, if three or four days of no power, think about all the food in the grocery stores. There'd be pandemonium on the streets. And then you have all these Antifa people like we see in Portland, literally ramsacking the place, riots. It can change so quickly. And people are living as if that would never happen. Well, the Bible tells us that it's going to be huge destabilization. Now, we have a different idea of what that would look like than maybe the prophet Zephaniah, but we have definitely come a lot further along than those days. Let's look at Joshua 10:11, And it came to pass as they fled from before Israel while they were at the descent of Beth Horon that Yahweh cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azkar, and they died. They were more who died with the hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. That tells you how this day of the Lord, this day of Yahweh, apocalyptic imagery moves forward. A couple more texts which give us that foundation of the day of Yahuwah. Joshua 24, verse 7. And when they cried out to Yahuwah, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. So can you see the thematic elements of the day of Yahuwah? What is it about? There's a division. There is a divide between the wicked and and the righteous, the called out assembly of Yahuwah, and those that are just going with the way of the world. The day of Yahuwah is actually what divides. It brings that division, and it clearly separates the wheat from the tares. And I've said this many times in past teachings, and you can really see it. I mean, why, why, why do they call many of the wicked their, their terms for their particular political expression is something or other pride or this kind. Why is it always around pride or I'm proud to be this? Because ultimately what's going to happen is the righteous are going to become more meek and humble as you bear fruit like wheat and the weight of that fruit of the wheat causes the wheat to bow down. But then the tares become more proud and more proud and stand more upright and more upright and more aggressive. And in fact, what that does is it sets us up for the great end time apocalyptic harvest when the angels will come down and the proud will be so upright and the meek will be prostrate, prostrate before Yahuwah that that final sickle harvest will be so easily be able to pick off the, the wicked. And it's really setting up. I just listened to a po podcast yesterday, and it was talking about how Trump had um, invited many of the conservative, um, yeah, the media people to the White House, and how that there actually kind of was a fight, I believe, or some kind of argument that broke out. But one of the conservative pundits was saying, you know, I don't want it to sound like a love fest. But it was really a great feeling of love and community in the room because when conservatives get together, there's usually this really, there's a lot of love and an expression because we're excited about what's happening. But when these um, 
socialists come along and hijack it, there's so much angst and anger and hostility that's brought. Why? Because they're just, they're just full of wickedness and anger. And so, you know, you can really see this wheat and the tares coming out in our time where, you know, you can literally just, you know, a friend of mine yesterday just said that he just mentioned the word of the president, the name of the president, and it triggered somebody. And they're just like, off, you know, you've got to be careful. In Portland, Oregon, if you were to wear a MAGA hat, you better be ready to fight. I mean, you've got, I mean, it's, it's crazy. The world has just become so so full of this pride and at this point the believers we need to really lay it down because that is going to be what brings about our salvation being meek and humble judges 5 4 yahuwah when thou wentest forth out of seir when thou marchest out of the field of edom the earth trembled the heavens also dropped Yea, the clouds dropped water. So for me, I love this whole intricate idea that you see through the scriptures of the divine warrior. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 20, because this is where this whole divine warrior comes from. And it's laid prophetically bare for us in Deuteronomy 20 in the laws concerning warfare. Because we're going to now look at the warrior or deliverer of Israel and how he will come about to destroy, to destroy his enemies. But there's a specific reason for the prophetic delay. Because how many of us are like, how much longer can we put up with this? There's a specific reason for this prophetic delay. Let's see if you can catch it. Deuteronomy 20, verse 1. This is talking about the divine warrior. Yes, he's coming. It's going to be called the day of Yahuwah, but there's a delay. He should have come like 10 years ago, right? I mean, 20 years ago. Some of you are like, well, I, I was, you know, 30 years ago. I was convinced, right? When thou goest forth to battle, Deuteronomy 20 against thine enemies, and seest horses and chariots and people more than you, thou shalt not be afraid of them. For Yahuwah thy Elohim, he is with thee, who brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be, when ye draw nigh unto the battle, that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. So the question that you will have to ask is, why didn't Yahushua, when he come, fulfill these words as warrior, deliverer, and divine judge? Because if you read Luke chapter 9, remember the disciples are going along and they're like, those people, they're not of us. Why don't we just rain down fire from heaven? That's what they wanted. They wanted to see that divine judgment right there in Luke chapter 9. They were expecting Yahushua to move forward from miracle worker, from healer, to now enact divine judgment on the Romans, enact divine judgment on the wicked. Why was he betrayed? Because Judas was reading all the prophecies of the Tanakh, and he misread them. And he's like, well, if he's really the Messiah, 
then if I kind of maneuver him a little bit this way, he's going to act and go to war against our enemies. So Judas got the timing wrong, not the message wrong, but the interpretation and the timing wrong, and he betrayed Yahushua. In Luke chapter 9, the disciples got the timing wrong of this judgment warrior deliverer. So what actually happened at Yahushua's trial is they chose another Yahushua instead of the Messiah. Let's read it together. Matthew 27, verse 15. This is Yahushua's trial. I'm going to give you a variant reading from an old Syriac and one of the older Greek texts. These is only a few manuscripts that read this way. Matthew 27, verse 15. This is from a few Syriac and Greek variant readings. Now, at the feast of the governor was wont to release unto the multitude one prisoner whom they would. And they had then a notable prisoner called Yahushua Ba'aba. And when therefore they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Who shall I release unto you? Yahushua Ba'aba or Yahushua, who is called Moshiach. Which Yahushua do you want? You see, Pilate at this point gave one Yahushua for another. One son of the father in place of another son of the father. Do you see it? They had the same name. It was a very common name like John is today. And Yahushua had already clarified this earlier in the Gospels when he said, you do the deeds of your father, you are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, therefore the murderer is who they chose, and Yahushua bar Abbas was released. Does that make sense? Because it was already... From the beginning, it was going to be, be between two sons of two different fathers and laid out. And you can see it in these variant readings of the Syriac. And a, there's just a few of the Greek. Well, of course, you, you lose that um, in your modern translations. Let me read on in the fifth verse about this divine warrior in Deuteronomy 20. Going back to Deuteronomy 20, verse 5. And the officers shall speak unto the people, saying, What man is there that hath built a new house and hath not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it. And what man is there that hath planted a vineyard and hath not used the fruit thereof? Let him go and return unto his house lest he die in the battle and another man gets to drink his wine. He hasn't harvested his grapes. That would be dreadful. And what man is there that hath betrothed a wife and hath not taken her? Let him go and return unto his house, lest he die in the battle and another man take her. Taking your woman, taking your wine, take, I mean, this is not good. You better get home and take care of this stuff before you go to war. 
I mean, you can't go to war unless you've been with your woman, drunk your wine, and secured your house. It's basically, that's how it was in the Old Testament. That's kind of how it is today. Or at least where I live, right, honey? Exactly. So why, <laughs> why did Yahushua not be that deliverer that the disciples were expecting in Luke 9? that Judas was expecting so much so that he betrayed them that they chose the son of a murderer, your father the devil, instead of Yahushua. Because Yahushua did not fulfill these prophetic words. I've taught on this back when I used to do the Torah portions, one of my favorite Torah portions. Yahushua didn't fulfill these prophetic words when he came the first time. Think about it. Is he still building his house? And he hasn't dedicated his house yet, has he? Because we're, two, we're still two sticks scattered into the nations, 12 tribes scattered abroad. Yahushua has to bring us into one stick and dedicate us before he goes out to war. That hasn't happened yet. Number two, he's planted a, visra, uh, uh, a vineyard and that vineyard is called Israel, right? Has he redeemed it yet? No. Matthew 21, verse 33. So he's planted the vineyard, Israel, but he hasn't redeemed us yet. We're still stuck out here in Babylon. And finally, he's got betrothed. He's betrothed us. But have we gone into the marriage supper of the Lamb yet? Has he yet married his bride? Revelation 21, verse 9. So he's being long-suffering and he is not going out to war the day of Yahweh hasn't happened yet because he is going to dedicate us into one stick. He is going to collect us and redeem us. He is going to bring us as his bride. And then when we're in that lowly place of protection in the house of Yahweh, then he will go out with that sickle harvest that we'll see in the book of Revelation and he will destroy these prideful, wicked people that are all around us trying to rob, steal your life and your family's life. You see, this is all about Yahushua restoring the kingdom to Israel and he accomplished these three things in Revelation 21 when he will bring about the words of Zephaniah at his return. This is super powerful. He's the divine warrior. He is this man of war. He is going to destroy the faint-hearted. He's going to destroy all these left-wing cowards out there. He's going to destroy the heathen unbelievers, the abominable, the murders, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. What does it say in Revelation 21? Verse 8, in the lake of fire, and then he's going to set up a new house. It's just going to be called the New Jerusalem. This, this is just amazing divine prophetic imagery. And we get to see the end of the prophetic story before it's unfolded, which is why the book of Revelation is exciting. How about that? So let's look at this term day as in day of Yahuwah. Because people would say, well, the day of Yahuwah. It designates not a definite extent of time, but a definite event in time. So it's not a designation of time, which will then get all of your prophecies messed up, but it is a specific definite event in time. 
whose nature is defined by these very texts and by Yahushua himself when he accomplishes these three things. Does that make sense? So, now we often see phrases when we read in the Bible, at that time or on that day, which I- indicate not fixed periods of time specifically, but particular events whose very nature is spelled out by the prophets and it's going to be fulfilled and fully executed by, I believe, Yahushua at his soon coming. So there's ten things that are important just to point out here. Number one, this day of Yahweh, it's a day that is near. That's what Zephaniah tells us, chapter 1, verse 7. That's what Amos tells us, chapter 6, verse 3. It's a day that's near. Number two, it's a day of Yahweh's wrath. That's what Zephaniah tells us in the 15th verse. Number three, it's a day of darkness and gloom, Zephaniah 1.17. Number four, it's a day where the heavenly bodies are going to be darkened, Amos 8.9. Number five, it's definitely a day where Yahweh is pictured as a warrior. We see that in the 14th verse of Zephaniah. Number six, It's a day of trumpet blasting and a battle cry. You see that in the 16th verse. Number seven, it's a day where enemies become dismayed and rendered impotent. Zechariah 14, verse 13. Number eight, it's a day where Yahuwah searches out his enemies and he will destroy them. Zephaniah 1.12. And then, number nine, it's a day where the wrath of the enemies, it can't save them. No matter how crazy they are, no matter how mad they become, their own wrath will never save them. It's useless. Zephaniah 1.18. And finally, number 10, it's a day, I love this, where human pride, all that pride is destroyed and the remnant, they are hidden and saved. Zephaniah 3.11 and Amos 5.14. It's powerful. Let's go back to our text now in the fifth verse. Zephaniah 1.5. And them that worship the host of the heaven upon the housetops, and them that worship and that swear by Yahuwah, and that swear by Malchum at the same time. You know that idol they've got down there at Bohemia Grove? And them that are turned back from Yahuwah, and those that have not sought Yahuwah nor inquired of him. Verse 7, keep silent. Keep silent at the presence of the master Yahuwah, for the day of Yahuwah is at hand. For Yahuwah has prepared a sacrifice And he has invited his guests. So keep silent before Yahuwah's sacrifice. This is the priestly remnant cry before the final slaughter that you see in Revelation chapter 8 verse 1. And who is offered? What is the offering of the animal? Now, in Zephaniah, the offering of the animal is the tribe of Judah. That's what's going to be shared with his guests. That's the offering. But in Revelation, it's they that say they're of the tribe of Judah 
but are not, but are in fact the synagogue of Satan, they're going to be the offering. You see? So do you see how it changes? It's the same but slightly different, a perversion. And that's what Revelation 2 is specifically talking about. Then in Revelation 19, specifically verse 17, talking about this sacrifice of offering, which is going to be those that say they're of the house of Judah, but are in fact not. They're the synagogue of Satan. And he cried with a loud voice saying, To all the birds that fly in the mid heaven, come and be gathered together unto the great supper of our Elohim. Here's the sacrificial offering. That ye may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains. So the elite are the synagogue of Satan. Behind all of our crazy globalism, all of our crazy politics, all of our crazy fiat currency that's been produced from these big bankers, it's all the synagogue of Satan. But they're the ones that are going to be the final sacrificial offering in Revelation 19.17. It's going to be exposed, which is why I keep harping on about the globalists, because I see it before, I'm like, it's everywhere. We live in a house of cards economically, and finally somebody's starting to expose it up at the higher levels, and that's why we're getting this great divide. I mean, if you look, I mean, just the connections to Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein, it's insane. You've got the royal family in England and all those pedo people. Then you've got it all over here. I mean, the connections is just insane. And this house of cards, I mean, it's teetering all about the synagogue of Satan, flesh of kings, flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and them that sit thereon, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, and small and great. Verse 19, and all of the birds were filled with their flesh. So, this is called the cherem sacrifice that comes at the end battle. You see it, again, it's pulling from the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 13 and 2 Samuel 15. Now I'm going to read verse 8 of Zephaniah. I hope you're tracking with me. I'm all over the place, aren't I? Boom, boom, boom. But, you know, that's me. I'm mad as anything, so whatever. Right. <laughs> And it shall come to pass in the day of Yah. It makes sense to me, so, you know, as long as it makes sense to me. You know, you pick up a little morsel here and there and we'll talk afterwards. It shall come to pass in the day of Yahweh's sacrifice that I will punish the rulers and the king's children. Oh, I'm looking forward to that day. They get after the kick. Please, you know, no more, like I said last week. Megan and Harry, Kate and William, can we, like, would somebody take the Wimbledon tennis rackets and go up and beat them in the stands or something, please? Or throw some strawberries and cream at them? I just, oh, it just, oh, oh, oh. I'm like, do you know how many taxes you're paying to support that idiocracy? Insanity. The house of cards, please. The king's children, let's take care of them and all such that are clothed with their weird freaking apparel. Are you allowed to say that? 
like freaking. In the same day also will I punish all those that leap. Oh, I like this one. That leap on the threshold. Look at that. Look at verse 9 of chapter 1. In the same day also will I punish all those that leap on the threshold which fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. You see, because they've fallen, verse 9, they've fallen victim to pagan idolatry. Now, in verses 4 and 5, they're symbolized by a specific act that we see here in verse 9, which is the stepping over the thresholds, because that's where the pagans believed that the evil spirits dwelt, right? So, in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 5, remember... The Philistines, they grab the ark, they bring the ark. And what do they do with the ark of the covenant? They bring it into the house of Dagon. See, so today what happens is we go, oh, it's a wedding, it's so cute. Oh. <laughs> and then we go and pick up the bride and then we go carry her over the threshold. Do we know what the heck we're doing? Because it's right here where we got this from, okay? And we all do it, right? I don't know if we did it, did we? Who knows? It was a long time ago. I'm sure we didn't because we were like, you know, I'm sure we did other things instead. We won't go into that. <laughs> all right. Back on track. First Samuel 5, verse 5. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any that come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod unto this day. So this is where the ancient Roman pagan custom came of carrying your bride over the threshold. This is where it came from, right here in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 5, because the threshold had been this means right here in the text of 1 Samuel. The threshold is the problem because this very threshold was the means of the cutting off the head and the hands of their idol Dagon, wasn't it? Why? What had they done? Well, because the power of Yahuwah had crossed the threshold boundary and neutered Dagon. This was a big problem for them. Something happened. So in their pagan mind, back in the day, they believed that generational iniquity or family demons of the woman followed her. So to keep the family demons from coming in the groom's house, she was then carried over the threshold for the first time. But in 1 Samuel, in the eyes of these crazy Philistines, the family demon, bear with me, the family demon of Israel had crossed the threshold and rendered the Philistines God dead, right? Because in the eyes of the Philistines, the family being Israel, the demon, the supernatural entity, of course, we know it as Yahuwah, but to them, they didn't know what was going on. And this supernatural entity from the family crossed the threshold and neutered their God. So from here, henceforth, began the custom of now you carry over the bride into the threshold, over the threshold, into the house, so none 
of the deities or the demons attached can come in because this is where it happened. So we do some crazy stuff today and we don't know why the heck we do it, right? So anyway, so back in the day, that's what they believed. They believed that the family demons of the woman followed her. So to keep her family demons from coming in the groom's house, she was carried across the threshold for the first time. And right here we see the Philistines were really concerned that the family being Israel, the demon being the supernatural entity that you and I know as Yahuwah, rendered their God, which we know was an idol, neutered and powerless. I love it. And this also add to that, back in the day, there was the marriage of capture. Remember you read the Old Testament? I mean, it's not like you would go down to the, the little coffee shop down there in the desert and find some young... No, you, they, they'd find some woman running around and they'd capture her. And she'd like, oh, well, yeah, that one's going to be my woman. And they would go and capture her and drag her into the house. She would literally be, you know, have to be carried across the threshold to go into your man cave to become your wife. So, you know, that's how many of these customs came. So, you know, if you're into that kinky stuff after you get married and a little bit of your pagan customs and you've got to do that, then, you know, that's between you and your new bride, I guess. Yeah, all right. Let's go on to verse 10. I don't know why I went off on that, but hey, why not? Verse 10. And it shall come to pass in that day, says Yahuwah, that there shall be a great noise of a cry from the fish gate. She then she became a fishwife. No, I'm kidding. No, it's got nothing to do with that at all whatsoever. There will be a cry from the fish gate and a howling from the second quarter and a great crashing from the hillcocks. How ye inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down and all they that bear silver are cut off. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles and punish the men that are thickening on their lees. So as I read the scripture, certain things I just kind of obsess on, obviously like the threshold thing, right? And the thickening on the lees. I'm like, oh, what does that mean? So then I go off on this trip for like six hours, just like, like what does this mean? So you're going to experience a little of that today with me. The thickening on their lees that say in their heart, Yahweh will not do good, neither will he do evil. You see, that is the world that we live in. People don't think, you know, even if they believe in a God, they think, wow, he's not going to do any good. Hey, he's not going to do any evil either. So pretty much I can do what I want because nothing ever happens. That's what they think. But you and I that have experienced the wonderful love of Yahuwah know that's so not true. Those of us that have escaped wickedness, those of us that have seen such blessing. But that is basically the mindset of a nation that is doomed. It's not that they don't believe that there's a God, but they think that he's been neutered, rendered powerless. It's not going to do anything good, not going to do anything evil, makes no difference. I shall just live for me. That's the world that we live in. And that's what's so shocking to me. Therefore, their goods shall come, become a spoil, and their houses a desolation. 
They shall also build houses, but not inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards, but not drink the wine of it. So you can see how this is pulled from that great warrior text in Deuteronomy 20. So let's talk about the thickening on their lees. Now this term, this is a winemaking term, and it comes from the processes of when they were making the wine where the lees are the sediment of the grapes and the new wine is allowed to sit undisturbed upon its lees. But it's only allowed to sit undisturbed upon its lees long enough to fix its color and to fix its body. So they would only let it sit upon its lees just long enough to fix the color and to fix the body. So what is this text talking about when it says it in this particular way? Because once they let it set on its leaves, just long enough, fixed color, fixed body, then it would be taken off the leaves, it would be poured into another vessel or drawn off because if it became too thick, it would become too syrupy, it would become too sweet, and it would become subject to mold. We live in such a sickly sweet, but it's phony, where people are afraid to offend one another. Everything, but, but underneath, there is such spiritual mold. But people, to your face, may be really nice. Oh, we don't, oh, you don't want to offend politically. Oh, oh you don't want to, oh, well, you don't want to discriminate. I'm not saying you should discriminate. But I'm saying you can't walk around on eggshells about everything that you say is going to offend people because you're all pretending that you're sickly sweet, but you've got spiritual mold because you've sat upon your lees. You're inactive. You're not out there doing kingdom things. You're too afraid. People are like, well, Matthew, you shouldn't teach like that. Well, I don't care. If you've got spiritual mold that you can't handle a little bit of biblical truth and a little bit of reality, then too bad. But me to stand up here like some namby-pamby catering to everybody nonsense, oh, we don't want to upset, oh, we got to, you know, got to bring everybody in. Give me a break. No, we got to divide and come in and find that narrow, narrow, narrow road because it's a figure of sickly sweet wine that has sat too long undisturbed. Think about all the churches that we've sat in with thousands of people. They've sat there for too bloody long undisturbed. Sickly sweet on their lees. This is the problem with the church triumphant today. It's not triumphant. Too many pastors are afraid to teach prophetic books like this to call out the synagogue of Satan for who they are for afraid of what? Offense. But the synagogue of Satan are in view here because they've become thickened wine sitting too long on their own sediment that they're now running Hollywood, running our banks, running our government. Now their color is bloody red. It is congealed congealed and ready to be poured out as dust and their flesh as dung. 
see. This is serious. And it does actually affect real people's lives. This week, right here, one of our Israelite brothers, he was at a barber shop, a Christian barber shop, and he literally wearing an Obey Yah Yisrael t-shirt, and he, this guy getting his hair cut in the barber shop became so offended, and he started to talk about the synagogue of Satan, that they were the Ashkenazi, that the guy got up out of the barber shop, weapons came out, and there was going to be a full-on brawl all over the Ashkenazi, the synagogue of Satan, weapons coming out, guys about to get into fisticuffs, followers of this ministry going out and speaking truth. And I'm like, wow, I've got some responsibility in this. So we've got to be cautious. You can't, you've got to be cautious with, you know, some of this newfound truth. And I love the zeal of the young, young men that are coming into this. I do. I love the zeal. Because they're like, oh, my goodness. But you've got to be careful. Because my friend that this happened to, he's like, it was fully on demonic when the guy got triggered. Full on demonic. They're literally going to have a brawl in a barber shop and weapons are coming out. And I'm like, well, I have some responsibility. I taught him this about the Ashkenazi not being the real Jew. But I need to talk about maybe there's a time and a place and some temperance because you've got to be careful, right? Because it's only going to get worse. But I love the zeal. I love the passion. I really do. But I do sense a, a, a sense of responsibility in that one. So anyway, let's read verse 14. I love the young zealous brothers, though. I really do. I love it. I love it. <laughs> let's go get them. But no, not really. No, we don't want to. Calm down. Calm down. See, I could be like, incite righteous mob violence yeah right but one day it's going to be we're going to be ready to go you know it right the great yom yahweh the great day of yahweh is near that's when we really be ready to go it is near and approaching greatly even the voice of the day of yahweh then the mighty man shall cry out bitterly that day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble, a day of tribulation, a day of waste and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of shofars and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. And I will bring tribulation upon men that they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against Yahuwah and their blood shall be poured out as dust and their flesh as dung because they've sat too long upon their lees. And this all builds from Deuteronomy 20. You've got the house, you've got the war, you've got the vineyard, you've got the wife. I mean, it's all, you see how it all plays together? And it all comes out in Revelation. I mean, it's really poetry. It's so inspiring to me that, I mean, it's, the word of Yahweh, I mean, there's no doubt that it is inspired and Yah breathed because it all, it makes so much sense on such a deep level that no man could have just penned this. <laughs> it was inspired. 
It is so inspired and interlocked. Judgment begins in Jerusalem. And in 1 Peter 4:17, finishing up here, for the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of Elohim. And if first begin at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of Elohim? So the judgment begins with me. I have got to judge myself. I have got to judge myself. I'm not going around. I mean, I know they're wicked as hell. I've got to judge myself. Because it's only when they judge themselves are they not going to be wicked. Because I used to be just as wicked as hell as that. I did. But it's when I judge myself, that's when it matters. Because too many times we're about judging other people. But you don't judge the lost. Judge the household of Yahweh if there's people in our midst that say they're believers and they're whoring around, they're drunkards and fornicators and they're swindlers, then yeah, we should judge the household of faith. But we don't judge the heathen. We let the heathen judge themselves by trying to love them and show them the mercy of the Savior so that they can begin the judgment themselves. Because when I got convicted by the Holy Spirit and started to judge myself, that's when it's powerful. Not when their priests were trying to judge me at boarding school. I just wanted to fight back and run away and smoke cigarettes and do everything bad, right? To rebel, which is what you do. So, again, I have no problem keeping the company of wicked and heathen no problem because I can remain divided yet able to hopefully help in the moment that they need it because I'm all the time trying to judge myself and sometimes I see the wickedness of what they're doing then it then actually helps me even judge myself oh, is that am I doing any of that oh am I agreeing with that okay so it's really helped me to become like when I was first saved again, just like really zealous and really in the midst of it because I'm around so much of it, but I've got this maturity now that I'm not insecure about being with wicked as hell sinners because I'm confident of my faith. It's pretty cool in a really hard way because it's the refiner's fire. It's not easy. It's not easy to, to toe that line. Judgment begins in Jerusalem. It begins at the house of Elohim. And here's the revelation. Verse 10. The destruction this time comes not first to the priests in the temple, but to the commercial quarter. Look at it. Where does it come? To the fish gate. The fish gate was in the north wall, where the fishermen from Tyre, they entered in with their catch. So the judgment isn't coming like Ezekiel to the priests. But it's coming to the commercial quarter, the fish gate, where the fishermen would come in from the north wall with their catch from Tyre. Then from the fish gate, it goes to the second quarter. And the second quarter was a suburb that was added to the city by Manasseh. And it was in Manasseh's wall near the fish gate. And finally, you see the judgment come in the mortar in the hillcocks, which means the place of pounding. Proverbs 27 verse 22 says, Thus, 
Though thou shouldest bray a fool in a mortar among the meat, wheat with a pestle, yet will not his foolishness depart from him. The pounding, the pounding. So this is talking about the mortar, a basin in the city between the east and the western hills in which Jerusalem was built. And the last verses of verse 13 consist, if you look carefully, of a book of the covenant infraction, curses that are laid out in the book of the law where this warrior deliverer is going to visit excuse me, the punishment because now he's finally built his house and he's dedicated it as one stick. He's finally planted his vineyard Israel and now he's redeemed it, Matthew 21, verse 33. And now he has finally, praise Yah, betrothed and married his bride, Revelation 21, verse 9. So now it's time for the pounding. Now it's time for this judgment. So now those who remain fall under the anvil of judgment of Deuteronomy 28, verse 30. Thou shalt betroth a wife, and another man shall lie with her. Oh, thou shalt build a house, and thou shalt not dwell in it. Oh, thou shalt plant a vineyard, and shalt not gather the grapes thereof. You see, when the warrior deliverer brings his judgment, he's going to actually now take everything that's written of as a blessing and he's going to destroy. Do you see how that happens? It's amazing. Deuteronomy 20 and then in converse, Deuteronomy 28. Blessings and curses. Blessings and curses. No judgment, judgment. Verse 18 of of, um, Zephaniah 1, finishing up. I said that 10 minutes ago, but whatever. It's a long chapter, or at least it was for me. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of Yahweh's wrath. But the fire of his jealousy shall devour the whole earth, for he shall make even a speedy end of them that dwell in the earth. Of course, this is spoken about in First. Thessalonians 5. This is about a wake-up to the unfolding global shakedown, exposing the kings of the earth and their fraudulent schemes. So much fraud going on. And Yahushua said that you out there that are faithless, that are unwatchful, negligent servants, can find that the door is shut right at this time. When your comfortable existence is taken right from under you whilst you are sleeping and making plans. Matthew 25 verse 10. The door locked, forever locked. The road which leads nowhere. The lie, the everlasting dark. And we find in our attempts, in conclusion, to rule our own lives, we too often find ourselves cast into utter darkness. When I try to rule my own life, be king of my own world, that's when I found myself in utter darkness. Utter darkness. Where all that waited for me was the weeping of men and the gnashing of teeth. 
But when I finally was 24 years old and I surrendered my self-rule, when I finally surrendered my own self-rule and surrendered to Yahushua, then, then, that's when I found the one who comes on the day of Yahweh's day to deliver me from his wrath that I may obtain salvation and forever, forever, forever be with Yahushua my all in all. And that was it for me. So, in conclusion, Zephaniah chapter 1 and 1 Thessalonians, I won't read it because I'm going too long anyway, chapter 4 and 5, they're really a, a symphony. They're really a symphony on destruction and salvation. Destruction to those that claim self-rule and salvation to those that have surrendered self-rule to Yahushua. And that's it. That's it. So I hope you enjoyed this. I loved it. Just studying it, spending the time. Oh, wow. Sheminator loved it. Thank you. Baruch Hashem. Sheminator. Righteous. You guys out there, give us a thumbs up if you like it. If you don't like it, give us a thumbs down. And leave some comments in the description below so we know what kind of content you want. And remember, subscribe and check the notification button because it really does help if you support this channel because uh, we don't want to get banned. So download our stuff too because it's only a matter of time before I say something that's going to get us banned, you know? So download this stuff because YouTube and Google are all part of the synagogue of Satan. I hope that wasn't the content that would get us banned, but you know what I'm saying. Questions, comments, lovely jubbly. We need the microphone. This is Mexican water. This is our sponsor today. This swam across the Rio Grande, did not come through border patrol, no immigration. This is straight from Mexico. Yes. All right, our first question is, can Matthew please comment on his T-shirt? Can Matthew please comment on his T-shirt? Can we get a shot of my T-shirt? Let's see if that, I, I don't think the microphone was on. What was the question again, just for our audience? First question is, could Matthew please comment on his T-shirt? Math, can Matthew please, my T-shirt needs no comment if you can see it, okay? The question that you have to ask is, did that, is it possible, okay, when we couldn't even do anything of great significance back in, was it 62? Yes, yeah, 62, okay, when the Europeans were trying to do amazing things on the racetrack, but we couldn't even get a bloody car around, do you really think that piece of junk could have made it through the Van Allen belts? Well, you know, if you think that piece of junk that is, you know, literally a monstrosity of human misadventure, then 
Google Stanley Kubrick, and uh, you figure it out. Moon Rock Sea is all I have to say on that subject. Another question. Okay, next question. Has Matthew ever done a teaching Has Matthew ever been to the moon? No. <laughs> and I know a lot of people who haven't either. A lot of people would like to send you to the moon. Yes. <laughs> a lot of people would like to send me to the moon. Yes, another question. Has Matthew ever done a teaching on using the sword? When is it righteous and when is it not? No, I haven't done a teaching of you. Well, I've used the sword unrighteously a lot, but I am maturing and, and trying to be more balanced. But I should do a teaching on that. That was a good one, wasn't it? See how I sidestepped that? Give us another one. Ask Matthew about the title of the Lord meaning Baal. Yes. If you look in Webster's Dictionary, you'll see that the Lord is another title for Baal, the ancient pagan god. And then, of course, we come up with the Lord today. It's just a title of a British landowner in the time of the King James Court. So Webster's is pretty self-explanatory of that. What camera are we on? Okay, all right. Just, just checking. I've got a, a lot going on here. Try to keep it all straight for you out there online. Yes. Last question. Are we still under the curses, and when will the curses be lifted? If you're into Judaism, Messianicism, yes, you're still under the curses. But if you've come into the Malkitzedic Book of the Covenant, then you're not. So it really is up to you, isn't it? We hope that you would embrace the truth and understand there is a distinction and division between the Book of the Law and the Book of the Covenant. The Book of the Law is full of curses in the Book of the Covenant administered under the Malkitzedic high priest who sits at the right hand of the Father. There are no curses. There is only one limited family curse. You must honor your mother and father so that your days will be long and that you will be blessed and come into the land. Baruch Hashem, Yahuwah. Catch us next week live and shalom, shalom.